Good day and welcome to the Cincy Slangin' Bearcat Podcast. Today, I'm your host, Hummer, joined as always by Coomer. What's happening, Coomer? Well, 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 the old rule reversal. Does this mean I get to sound like a uh, absolute lunatic, unhinged in my takes, calling for cannings? It's a great day to be a Bearcat Hummer. My wife just came out of the bedroom with the look of, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> and she, she, she mouthed it. <laughs> now you get to, now you get to live with the shame that I live with every week when my kids are screaming that running around the house while my wife rolls her eyes and, uh, asks what the hell she married into. But alas. Oh, it's all right. You know, nothing, nothing beats the shame that was since sports this weekend, all across the board. Uh, the Reds just completely f- collapsing down the stretch. Uh, the Bearcats putting up a, a dismal performance against BYU, or I guess maybe we'll talk about that when it comes. Maybe to- it wasn't as bad as we thought. We'll get maybe. into that. And uh, obviously, we had the the Bengals failed failed to score a touchdown, so we got a lot to unpack today. Do you do you recall in the springtime? I think it was the springtime. It must have been before that. It must have been last winter. There was win Cincinnati. You know, the Reds were on some sort of like 12-game win streak. The Bengals were, you know, an untouchable franchise that was ripping off victory after victory after victory in the NFL. FC Cincinnati gets off to this impeccable start. And frankly, credit to FC Cincinnati. They now, they've held up their end of the bargain and they won the, the Supporter Shield, which is the a secondary championship for Major League Soccer, the first and most important championship, remains the MLS Cup. We can get getting we can get into that later too. I'd love to talk to you about that potentially if we have time. But you have to educate me on that. What's the what you know? Is this like the semi okay bowl? Well, let me ask you this: Do you know what the Stanley Cup trophy is? Yes. Do you know what the president's cup is the president's trophy do you know what that is no okay enough said <laughs> win cincinnati was a long long time ago my friend that's all i'm saying and i think it's a heck of a good thing that the cincinnati bearcats basketball team is coming back after another much hyped off season now i'd love to talk to you about what our expectations are and start getting into this whole idea of previewing the cincinnati bearcats basketball season this will not be our comprehensive preview episode, but I do think it's time to start talking some Bearcat hoops, given that it is October. We're about 30 days out from Jizzle James, John Newman, Victor Lockin, all of our Cincinnati icons taking the court and uh, entering, well, eventually entering Big 12 play come 2024. But I do think it would be prudent of us to revisit the BYU-Cincinnati Bearcat matchup that occurred last Saturday that kicked off at 10.15 p.m. that resulted in us recording a post-game podcast at, what, 2.30 a.m.? Pretty yeah, brutal night. Yeah, notes don't turn out too well, you know, when you've had, you know, 12, 13, 13 beers during the day. It's just, it's not, it's not an ideal situation, uh, you, know, you think you come out strong. You think you have good stats. Uh, you, th- you know, it looks like it could be a strong performance, but in the end, it's all in your mind. It was a dud. It's an embarrassment, semi-related to what happened on the field. Here's the thing: it wasn't actually a dud statistically, and we touched on this in our post-game recap. I think we did a good job identifying the fact that. You look at the uh, you look at the box score of the Cincinnati Bearcats versus the Cougars, and you think to yourself, "Damn, we dominated the game. We outgained them. We on, on the ground." Like, let me—I'm trying to pull up the stat sheet here on the fly, and of course, I'm I'm struggling with. No, it I don't because... really think you need to pull up the stat sheet. I think what we're you know, if if we just if you talk about the flow of that game, we're going in. We've, I think, what did we do? We, we scored. We're going in the halftime with what looks like 
it's going to be a lead. And BYU just, I think they had negative two passing yards going in into the final drive of the half. And they just two, steamrolled Two yards us. passing. Two, two yards two passing. There's less, down less the than a minute left in the game. The Bearcats are leading the game. Um, they're leading the game at that point. And it looks like they're going to go into halftime with a 10 to seven lead, which frankly was a disappointing lead when you looked at how we were playing, because those seven points were from a pick six, an atrocious pick six by Emory Jones in the first quarter on the first drive. And it looked like, Holy cow, this is going to be an extremely long night. What a disappointment from that moment forward. Our defense absolutely dominated the game. BYU got nothing going offensively. The Bearcats offensively weren't scoring points. Obviously, they had 10 points at that moment heading into halftime, but you're but they had a lead nonetheless. And when you looked at the script of the game and you looked at the flow, it was very clear, hey, this is a this is a game we have to win. We are better than this team, we're more talented, we are we are overmatching BYU on their home field. It doesn't matter that we're playing in the mountains. But from that last possession of the second quarter forward, the Bearcats, frankly, everything went downhill. Big plays given up time after time after time to BYU. Um, and then offensively, you know, it, it picked up a little bit. They finished with 27 points. One of those touchdowns, touchdowns was in garbage time, but it was more of the same for the Bearcats. Tons of yards. First downs, 26 to 17. Total yards, 498 to 295. Rushing, 242 to 70. Ball control, 35 minutes to 25 minutes. Yet none of it mattered because the Bearcats turned it over twice. Twice, Two critical turnovers. BYU made massive plays. And somehow the Bearcats lose this game 35 to 27. And so we obviously had this tone after the game of this is immensely disappointing. And this team is immensely disappointing. And this new coaching staff we have is a letdown. And if you were cynical about the hire, you have every reason to continue being cynical and it's hard to find the positives. Enter friend of the keep, podcast. Keep, keep it just coming. Keep it coming. Keep, keep, keep calling me a skeptic. I'm fine with it. Oh, I'm the resident skeptic on the pod. I think I said the words, I am no longer meh and I'm on the train of unimpressed. <laughs> Color me unimpressed. Let it be known. I fully declare myself unimpressed with you, Mr. Scott Satterfield. I've had enough of your shenanigans. Well, a lot of work to do. Good friend of the podcast, a former guest who has reinvented college football too many times to count at this point. He's an idea man. He's someone who thrives on um, reinventing the status quo on thinking bigger than what you would typically expect from the, the typical narratives. He's a friend in real life. He's a, uh, a dominant commissioner for a fantasy football league, Kevin Wallace post. And I don't know what he calls himself. Let's call him the CEO of the post. Since he throws this little grenade into the cat Skeller social club. I quote, Process-oriented, gotta love what you see so far. Results-oriented, you're already warming up the hot seat. So I ask you, Hummer, process versus results. Does Kevin Wallace of the Post-Cincy, great for FC Cincinnati coverage, by the way, make sure you go check him out, is he raising a fair point that process we should be quite over the moon and pleased with the start Scott Satterfield has had. Or is the results angle of, hey, we're two and three and we've lost to an overmatched BYU team. We've lost to Miami Oxford and we've lost a fake close game to Oklahoma. Where do you land in this camp? How valid is Mr. Kevin Wallace's point? Uh, it is as valid I'm trying to think of a of a good joke and we'll put it this way. I'm not funny. So I don't I don't think that's funny either. I don't think it's right. I think when you talk about a process, you're talking about right now a coach and a team in general that if the process is to march the ball 80 yards down the field, immediately hit the brick wall that is the 
25, 20 yard line and not score, that's not a good process. That's not a trend that we want to keep continuing. And if the, if, you know, the only process that actually was ever going to work was in Philadelphia until, until they abandoned the process. What we have with Scott Satterfield is a coach that has been doing the process for many years at multiple schools, Appalachian state, Louisville now here, we're expecting a different outcome than what he achieved at those two schools, which was roughly a, a 60, 60% win total uh, at both schools in Louisville. I truly believe that if he were there this year and was performing this way again, he was on the hot seat. This was a no lose situation for him to come here. It, it restarts the clock for him. So if we think that this is the process, that this is what we're going to deal with, like this team, apparently we can move the ball. That's, that's not an issue. Moving the ball around the field is not an issue. Scoring points is an issue. So I, I don't think that's a valid argument at all because if it's process-oriented, the process is broken. It needs to be fixed. I think that the opinion you're expressing there is one that a lot of the fan base has, which is what the hell are you talking about with the process? This team is two and three, and they've lost to Miami, Ohio, and there's nothing else to talk about. A couple of interesting graphs were shared in the Catskiller Social Club Discord this week, and I think it's worth pointing out. Shout out to Nick Bauer, the pod budsman, for, for sharing these. One of them, I think it comes from an account that essentially has the running theme of, did we really get beat that bad? And it talks about net success rates. And it points out a net success rate in week five where the Bearcats land in the upper echelon of college football. And... They are they're in compared to the likes of Clemson. They're compared to the likes of um, they're they're above Wisconsin, for example. They are toward the top quartile of college football in success rates. They are moving the ball successfully. Their plays results in positive yardage. You know, I think they're right behind Missouri, right behind Florida, but just in front of Clemson, just in front of North, in front of North Carolina, in front of Central Florida, in front of Wisconsin, in front of Kansas, and it so forth. It sounds like you're about to tell me that we are winning some sort of second place trophy. It's not a second place trophy. It's simply saying that from an offensive standpoint, this team in week five specifically moved the ball. But we knew that, and we pointed that out in the stat sheet that we completely dominated BYU. We had no business losing to BYU, yet somehow we managed to lose to BYU. And going hand in hand with that, it points out the comparison of net success rate to your likelihood of winning the game or, or whether or not you won the game. And BYU had the worst success rate compared to actually winning the game in college football last week. They were the most unlikely victor in college football in week five. Now, in a vacuum, that might be okay. And you can chalk it up to being a fluke. Here's the problem. We've seen the off offensive stagnation the week before against Oklahoma. We saw the team stall out time after time after time after time and score six points in Nippert Stadium against a team, you know, that had 20 first half points dropped on them by Iowa State the next week. The week before that, we saw the team stall out again and again and again in the red zone while ultimately losing a home matchup to Miami Oxford. And so I think it feels a little optimistic, a little soft, for lack of a better term, to say that process is happy, results equal bad. These results, to, to my mind, are, are a bridge too far. You can't just chalk it up to, hey, we were expecting two and three. Pittsburgh's atrocious. Miami's not a good team. BYU, we had more talent than... The Bearcats, these the are easy, this is an easy schedule outside of the Oklahoma matchup so far. The frustrating thing about it is, though, even that Oklahoma matchup was winnable. Like we were, the, we, there were positions that we were in that could have allowed us to be more in the game than 
20 at 20 to six. We had opportunities. We, we let them go from third and 19 to a, to on, on our two to, to a first down on a, on a punch out play. There's times where this team just seems to, to fall asleep and not execute at the big moments. And that's, that's the issue I think we have because we also saw that with Miami. Granted, it should never come down to a field goal, but it did. We could have won the game. We got a blocked, a, a horrendously blocked field goal in, in that game. Just absolutely atrocious. Every, by the way, every, every blocked field goal is horrendous. There's never such a thing as, a, as an, a blocked field goal that isn't horrendous. That is true to an extent. Sometimes the defender makes a good play. In that in this case, it was almost like we just tripped in the said, here you go, just, just, just please block. In fact, here it is. The ball's here. Block it for us. It's like we gave them the block. It was so bad. Yeah, and I think I, that's where the frustration is. And honestly, like it's, I guess some bright spots. Like if if you do want to chalk it up to process, great. We're 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 running the ball for a bunch of yards. We're we're throwing the ball around a little bit, but we're not really getting anywhere once we get to the twenty. Congratulations, the process gets us close to scoring. Like if that's if that's how some people want to look at it. the other thing that's been bothering me, the fans going out and saying the luck stat, oh. we're pulling out luck stats <laughs> to justify what's going on here. Like, oh, like we're we're that unlucky. Like Emory Jones throwing a horrendous pick doesn't equate to bad luck. Like it was a bad play, and, and to a certain extent, like in my mind, luck comes down to are you getting those the calls from the ref that are just very subjective right like are you getting bad a bad penalty uh, a holding penalty are you getting a bad uh pass interference called on you right like luck if anything's gonna shoot luck and this is even luck it was a dumb play the 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 botched punt when we're down eight right that's not luck that was a bad play. The defender had the choice to not touch the ball, to well, just let it go over his head. It, that exactly. All those examples you shared, those those are not bad luck. Those are mistakes. Those are lack of attention to detail. Those are, you know, I, I would argue mistakes on all three phases, which is something I want to come back to. What is bad luck is BYU quarterback. Keaton Slovis admitting that his TD pass was meant for Keanu Hill and Jacob Robinson admitted he wasn't supposed to fall off his man when he came up with his pick six. Those two plays are, are situations where BYU just stumbled into, you know, a, a, a pick six or they stumbled well, that's into. How it, that's, that's how it happens sometimes. Like, Oh, Guinness was a, a happy accident as well. If we want to go as, as far as to say one of the greatest beers on earth shouldn't, shouldn't <laughs> exist in a, in a pick six shouldn't have happened. It did. Congratulations. You ended up actually making a good play. Are they being facetious and are even being like, Oh, I shouldn't have done that. Like whatever. I'm not buying that. We're just so unlucky that that's the reason why we're losing at the end of the day. We're not putting up points. We're not scoring. We're not. We're making mistakes inside the red zone. We're making mistakes on defense too. Let's keep well, in mind, like when you score, you threw up thirty-five points and you botch a punt. I, I guess we got to take it back to all three phases of the game. We're we're just making too many mistakes everywhere. There's not one area where we can say, hang our hats up and say, you know what, this was an all-around good performance by this unit. That's a bingo. That's a bingo. Because you can point to the process and say, hey, guys, offensively, yardage is there. We're moving the ball easily. We're, we're one of the best running teams in the entire country in college football. Those things are true. And you can make an argument, as we have made in the past, that when you're moving the ball like that, when you have that type of yardage, regression to the mean will eventually interfere and lead to the Bearcats scoring more points, especially in the red zone. You can't be this inept in the red zone all year long. That's what that theory would lend you. What I would then say and, and, and point to is, okay, but we also are looking at our special teams making multiple errors in multiple games that were critical plays that could be directly attributed to us losing the game. You can talk about the block kick. You can talk about Braden Smith's 
you know, punt return. That was a fumble that ultimately led to BYU scoring what was essentially the the nail in the coffin touchdown. We're also seeing defensively, which came in with a ton of hype. If there was one thing we felt somewhat confident in, it was that the Bearcats would have a very solid defense um, led by a defensive coordinator in Brown that, that was very effective at Louisville, that was tremendously effective at getting after quarterbacks, getting in the backfield, tackles for loss and sacks. And we were looking at our, our makeup on, on the roster and saying defensively, our front seven are strong. We've returned enough talent and added enough talent to compensate for what is a weakened secondary that over the years has lost Arquan Bush, Sauce Gardner, and Kobe Bryant. You can't just replace those guys overnight. But this team's getting punctured for massive gains consistently. BYU was beating us with, you know, 40, 50, 60 yard chunk plays. Miami was doing the same exact thing. Frankly, Oklahoma moved the ball in explosive ways, but Dylan Gabriel is uh, is an underachiever and, and simply came up short in those moments. All three phases of the game are having significant issues that to me point to a weakness in process. To me, they point to flaws in the process because there's a level of sloppiness. There's a lack of attention to detail and there's recurring issues that frankly, if our process was airtight, we should see those things improving week to week and not degrading. And and I think the biggest concern I have is that since that performance against EKU, which is certainly an aberration at this point, our team has consistently degraded. I think the quality of our performances have gone down outside of an effective running game that has translated game after game but doesn't have the ability to close drives as we've seen in the red zone time after time. Well, I don't know about you. I, I can't talk about this for too much longer. We, we, we've talked about it for two, two days. We talked about it for, for three. Uh, I'm, I'm going to change gears here because it's almost the most amazing time of the year. And that is the beginning of the University of Cincinnati college hoops season. I'm sorry for all the, the, the younger generation out there who, you know, you've grown up with, with football being, you know, the, the Cincy daddy. It's time for the old guys, the OGs, to salivate over what I think is going to be an amazing Bearcat basketball season, especially uh, in, in within the past five years, since the departure of Mick Cronin, I think I think we are poised to have what could be a pretty special team. Our football team and our football program is tremendous, and what's happened in the last decade plus is no short of of, of a miracle, and it can be attributed directly to us landing in the Big Twelve, which is the premier college basketball conference. You cannot write off the importance of our college football program. But all of the success we've achieved, including the college football playoff, is the equivalent of winning an Emmy. Our basketball program, in the history of our basketball program, we are multiple-time Oscar winners. The Oscars have more prestige. The Oscars have more history. The Oscars are what we, as a collective society, have a more and stronger and more passionate memory of. And to me, that's what we enter as we enter the basketball season. Our podcast started as a basketball podcast. Our podcast remains firmly committed to irrationally celebrating and reacting to and mourning for our beloved Cincinnati Bearcats basketball program. And the dawning of October is, in fact, a time to turn the page and make sure we begin incorporating Wes Miller and his wonderful, exciting, high potential team into the conversation again. Let, let me recap for, for the audience out there how, how we got here. This is the only Bearcat basketball podcast that was willing to call it right in the moment. We're the only college basketball podcast, probably in the country, who's ever gotten their basketball coach fired. We're the only college that was us. We we are the reason why the nightmare of John Brandon ended prematurely. Uh, we right read, here, 
right here. Right here. The tea leaves. Right here. After happening. After 12 months earlier, putting John Brandon in the Hall of Fame. And don't you fucking forget it. <laughs> Never will. <laughs> uh, so here we are. We we are in what we're going on. What Wes Miller, this will be his third, third season at the helm of the Correct. Cincinnati Bearcats. This is, in my mind, a pivotal season for Wes Miller. There are no more excuses. His guys are here. The the John Brandon recruits are here. Yeah, we think. But for the most part, the John Brandon era recruits are out of the program, except I think what we got one one still on the roster, which we love, Vic, Victor, Victor Lockin. Lockin. Uh, but for the most part, and John, I guess, with John Newman, was he a – I don't remember if he was a Brandon guy. John Newman is, in fact, a Wes Miller guy. He was committed to transfer from Clemson to UNC Greensboro, and when Wes Miller took the Cincinnati job, he decided to take his talents to Cincinnati, and boy, do we love him for it. Okay, so so we're right. We're, we're down the one John Brandon era guy, but he's a good, good one to have on the squad. This is now Wes Miller's team. These are guys that he has brought in to to run his style of basketball to believe in his brand of basketball to to build the culture he wants to have here this year to me is we're really going to see if Wes miller is real the real deal or not i'm not saying this isn't this isn't like a final four make or break this is just are we going to make the tournament are we going to because i personally think with this roster my prediction i'm just going to start off hot i think we're going to finish in the top five of the big 12. I saw that some early things were 50, I think, starting off the year on Ken Palm. Uh, Haslam has us like in the, in the low 60s. I think it's hard for those metrics to, to, to vet out when you when you haven't seen this team play, and it's almost oh, you know it's a lot of transfers, six new transfers, I think. Uh, call me out if I'm wrong on the number. I haven't actually looked at uh, taking stock there. Uh, I don't I don't but, I don't use numbers necessarily. I'd like I'll use names, and we'll make sure we we break down who's arrived, who's departed, and what's happening. We got, we got and, five. We got five transfers. Assuming we get all the waivers, we have five. Well, um, there you go. So pause right there because you're going out there and making proclamations about we're being undersold in Kempom, undersold at Haslam, and this is the year for Wes Miller to get these very tangible and real results that we haven't seen in his first two seasons. And let's be clear, results when you're the head coach – of the Cincinnati Bearcats is making the NCAA tournament. Okay. And, and we're going to build toward higher seeds in the NCAA tournament, but given the drought we're currently on, which is not sniffing the tournament since COVID came into existence. That which, is first that we and were foremost. Sniffing it by the way. And I don't care what anybody says that was a bubble team sitting on the wrong side of the bubble at the time. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Good correction. Thank you, John Brandon. We did sniff the tournament that year. Barely. We did sniff it. We sniffed we it. Sniffed, we also sniffed oh. the smell of smoke as he burned Jaron Cumberland's stat sheets in his office. It was a scratch and sniff. It was one of those scratch and sniffs with the faint smell. For a few seconds. Of, of white vinegar. Yeah, it chewed like double bubble gum, <laughs> you know, or, you know, it, it, the flavor was gone very quickly. <laughs> Wes Miller is is certainly, I would say we're entering the season with higher expectations than higher expectations than we have seen yet in the Wes Miller era. Here is why I pause before declaring any sort of official prediction. There are two extremely large variables still outstanding with the Cincinnati Bearcats basketball team, and that would be Jamil Reynolds. Say his name. Jamil Reynolds, a transfer center from Temple, who has lost, according to Wes Miller, 45 pounds since arriving at UC. Folks, the Monster Factory appears to be back. We also hear hyperbole about running the court, as well as any big man he's ever seen, as well as being the best passing big man he's ever had on a roster. Mitch, we have Victor Locken on the roster. Yeah, but we've also noticed that Victor Locken's assist rates are very low. We've seen flashes of brilliance in passing, but we've yet to see a Wes Miller offense feature a Bearcat big that would actually have the ball run through him, not just for a shot, but for uh, breaking down a defense and finding open shooters. 
if that's yeah. something he's introducing to the team, fantastic. Over the first two seasons of the West Miller era, that is not something he does. Reynolds is the lesser of the two big man transfers that linger. Reynolds has not been cleared yet to actually play for the Cincinnati Bearcats last season because he transferred from Temple. He has already used a transfer once going from UCF to Temple. So he needs to get a waiver to be cleared. There's another gentleman. Say his name. Another very large gentleman who has also not been cleared by the NCAA yet, who also needs a waiver. And his name, as I sit in this hotel room. Wake, wake the neighbors up. At 9.30 p.m. Is a Pendego! A little different. <laughs> Switched it up. I don't want to get kicked out of my room tonight, but Aziz Bandego from Utah Valley State, who, if you followed the Bearcats last year, dominated us in the NIT, also transferred to the Bearcats, and is also needing a waiver in order to play due to this being his second transfer. Hummer, until those two guys receive their waivers or don't receive those waivers, I am not sure how we can fully process what we expect of this team because if they let's say those waivers don't get cleared and it's, unfortunately, it's an abject disaster this is, the one, disaster. this is the one area where the ncaa is still flexing they are deciding that making it so that 22 year olds don't play the college sports they love that that is their the hill they want to die on there is a real possibility that this doesn't happen and if they are not cleared our two traditional front court players are victor lockin and Odio Guama in terms of guys who have played minutes. There's also Sage Tolentino, who was largely reported to not be ready to see the court last year, barely sniffed the court this season. It would, it seems like a stretch that he would go from no minutes in the American athletic conference to real minutes in the big 12. So if they are not cleared, that is a big time, big time, big time variable that has to be accounted for in terms of any expectations for the team this season. I agree. So I'm I'm not going to disagree with that point that that is a huge variable. I'm going to operate under the assumption that we're getting at least one of those waivers and that that waiver is Aziz. Um, that's 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 my bare minimum on the expectation. But here here's the here's the reality. Well, we also can well, let's just say it. We've heard on, some whispers. On, we've heard whispers that we have that are positive but, uh, for having I'm a waiver, also, having received one of the waivers. But Wes Miller claims we haven't received either. But I have heard otherwise that one of the waivers is looking very 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 good and that's what that's what we've heard but i also want to be clear though what i realistically expect from the team if those two waivers were to get denied doesn't stop me saying that wes miller in his third year has an expectation from a fan base to make the tournament because this is the team that he's put together these are the players he has selected if he didn't have a backup plan for those two players not getting cleared for waivers, that's still on him as the head coach. It was to be an incredibly disappointing year without those two waivers if we didn't make the NCAA tournament. I don't know if, if that's harsh or whatever, but that that is where I would be in the, in this process, if you would. If we don't get those waivers, we don't make the tournament. But I, I actually have faith that we're getting those waivers I feel like when you talk about the losing 45 pounds, you know, you're going from a, a situation that he was in a temple, mental health coming here. It's clearly it's, it's working. It's magic. It has its benefits. Yeah. And, and so it's just. Well, I'm, let's, just call, I'm let's call it what it is. Let's call it what it is. Both of those players played for programs whose coaches left those programs or fired from those programs. Mark Madsen, Danson Mark Madsen from the Lakers celebrations of the early 2000s that we all know and love, decided to leave and take his talents out to the University of California, Berkeley. That's his prerogative, but that's Aziz Bandego's coach who he went to Utah Valley State to play for. He is no longer there. Aaron McKee, another NBA legend, who actually played those early 2000s Lakers teams in the NBA Finals, a very good six-man for a large stretch there in the NBA, was fired because Temple was inept and he couldn't keep his team in order back in the day. Khalif Battle um, now takes his talents down to Arkansas to play with Jeremiah Davenport and that Eric Musselman crew. Dude, I, I feel bad. Anybody who takes over the Temple program, like 
the temple would be a hard place to recruit where it's located in the city of Philadelphia. It's just, I, it has to be a very regional place. I feel like to, to recruit if you're going to do it at all. And even those players know, get the hell out of Philly. Uh, I actually, I, I regret them not restoring some of their, you know, greatness from the nineties. I love those John Chaney teams, Pepe Sanchez. They gave Bob Huggins and his teams a ton of problems back in the day. Just yeah. a fun, scrappy program with some good history, surprisingly great history from a basketball standpoint that's had trouble finding it again. And it's not a team. I, I know you love to hate Temple. You love to visit the message boards, troll them, the three or four fans that are on those message boards and call them out on this podcast. To me, it would be great to have Temple back in a great place again. That's not the case. But in, in it's important to note that in Reynolds and Bandego's situations both of their coaches have left and both of them have decided to leave those programs because the main driving force that kept them around both of them are gone and it's just complete bullshit that the ncaa is flexing in this one specific area because they've completely lost control of what used to be college sports they know they can't do shit about the money they can't do anything about nil because if they do the courts will ultimately rule that, hey, you should be paying them even more and you should be facilitating payments directly through the university, not through third party intermediaries that are using name, image and likeness. The whole thing is fraudulent. The whole thing has been fraudulent. They, and this they, is if, the last grasp if, and the last dying grasp for any sort of power. I think you're I think you're wrong about that, that the NCAA doesn't have any power here. I think what they're afraid to do is test their power. I think they're afraid to actually try to put real rules in place that keep this to actually profiting off your name, image, and likeness. That's what when I'm saying. Have, yeah, well, it will snowball into something much, much greater. You will all of a sudden, all those profits that are going into the bureaucracy of college sports are instead actually being funneled directly to athletes. Fine. That's what I'm saying. They're afraid to do it because I think there is power there. At the end of the day, when we're hearing reports of guys requesting five grand to visit a school, I'm sorry. That's a speaking engagement. That's work. That is not, that is not name image likeness. Like you're, I just think that's, that's, that's taking it too far. I think they could develop and adopt rules about it. And it's instead of tackling that, they want to make arbitrary rules on, you know, what, what guys can and can't transfer for. And at the end of the day, if coaches are allowed to leave in the middle of a contract, a 20, an 18 year old, 19 year old, 20 year old kid, should be able to do the same thing. If your coach leaves, end of story. Free game. Transfer. You're out. Yep. Right? You, you yeah. have the story about the Michigan State with, with Mel Tucker getting getting fired, and they just pulled – not even not even did they – they pulled all the NIL deals. They were able to cancel NIL deals with those kids. What a disgrace. What The a argument joke. against it is, well, they've already transferred once before. Well, here's the thing. Those guys have transferred once before, and those coaches made the case that, hey, this is the best place for you to come and fulfill your college playing career. Play for us. Play for me. And during that time, those coaches either got fired for being shit or they left because they were successful and wanted to make more money elsewhere at a bigger opportunity bigger visibility. And if that's yep. what your coach is doing, who recruited you after your first transfer, it's obvious. It's just blatantly obvious. You should get another exception period. Look, the, the, here's the issue. Here's the real issue. When it comes to college athletics at a certain level, when you're far enough down in the D one ranks, or you're not in the D one ranks, you're in D two, D three, whatever you're playing at, at Mount St. Joe, like, that's where you're going to actually get an education. You're not going to play basketball at Mount St. Joe with this expectation that you're going to end up a lottery pick in the NBA draft or picked up and, and, more, and playing a, a nice 20-year career overseas, shuffling between, you know, Eastern Russian or Eastern Russian, Eastern, Eastern European countries. When you're when you're playing at the in schools like the University of Cincinnati, you're playing at Kansas, you're playing at, at Duke, you're playing at any 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 bigger major power conference school, even the bigger mid-majors, you're going there because you're playing basketball. You're trying to further your career. This is the next level of getting to the pros, which is ideally you do well in this level, you develop, and you move on to a G League if you don't get drafted or a D League, right? And you just you keep building up or you go play overseas. 
that's what this is. And they're, they're making this, the NCAA is coming from this, well, you should be really picking the program, not the coach, because it's all about school. But no, they don't actually stopped, care, Hummer. They have no power about, anywhere stopped, else. It's, it's crumbling. The school. whole thing is crumbling. It's breaking it's down. Being, it stopped being about school 30 years ago. Yeah. It hasn't been it's, about school in a long time. The game's changed, and this is their last-ditch effort to to maintain some semblance of legitimacy, and it's pathetic. Now that we're in a big, now that we're in a power five conference, cut them out. Let's go to 65 teams. <laughs> one thing, I don't one thing you point out, you, you do point out about being excited, even if those waivers don't clear. I, I would be immensely disappointed if neither of them are playing next season. It would be a tremendous disappointment. Wes Miller would have thrown his eggs into the basket of, of, Trying to lure in legitimate talent and guys that he thought could make a difference in the front court. Well, what I'm saying is we have we have other guys coming in who are going to make a difference. We've added legitimate shooting in the form of CJ Frederick, in the form of Seamus Lukosius from Butler. Um, Both guys who have really high potential or have proven in the past, in the case of CJ Frederick, to be a high, high, high level contributor to big time winning programs in Iowa and Kentucky. It's all about health with him. In Seamus Lukosius, I definitely had some apprehension at the beginning, looking at his highlights, physical profile, and seeing the physical comps to, you know, Jeremiah Davenport in terms of being 6'7", someone who has more of a liability defensively, not necessarily a game changer on that end. Very quickly, though, if you spend any time watching Seamus Lukosius, uh, in the form of highlights, in the form of extended game clips, in the form of practice highlights while filming a local news segment. Seamus Lukosius is nothing like Jeremiah Davenport. He is much more skilled. He has much more ability to facilitate for others, get in the lane, create for the likes of Victor Locken, Bandego, Aguama, etc., and has the ability to go off the dribble and create for himself in the mid-range and on the three-point line. And he's also young, sophomore, great size with the ability and potential to develop and grow. I I mentioned those two ads because they're some of the more seasoned veterans that we're adding to the equation here outside of the bigs. There's also exciting freshmen coming in in Jizzle James, Rayvon Griffith, both of which I'm not going to put in significant expectations on freshmen to be major contributors at the Big 12 level early in their careers, but there's no doubt that both of them are tremendous athletes high-level upside defensively, rim attackers offensively, and it's going to be exciting to see how Wes Miller can integrate them early on in the process here. And then we we can't go by without saying it, but the fact that we saw Jeremiah Davenport transfer out and go to Arkansas is a major addition by subtraction. That was uh, easily the biggest liability on these basketball teams during the first two years of Wes Miller's career at UC. And it's going to improve us instantly by simply not having to cover for him defensively and not having to put up with his selfish shot selection offensively. All of those things combined with or without Aziz and Reynolds, this is a team that's going to be more fun to watch is going to be more, it should be less ISO driven offensively in their attack and defensively seems to be a bit more versatile than they've been in years past. That's going to make the, the highlight reel right there. <laughs> Jeremiah Davenport, uh, addition through subtraction. Um, and while I was laughing at that, did you mention uh, Day-Day, Day-Day Thomas? Ah, I didn't mention Day-Day. And he's it's a critical okay. addition. He's actually, he's the biggest wild card. And I'll let you go on on Day-Day. Yeah, I was going to say, he's, if I'm picking an early, like, I can't say surprise, right? But maybe surprise, if that's what we're going to call it. But, the guy who I think is going to have like the the biggest impact that's that you're not quite expecting, I think it's going to be Day Day. I think we're going to I think we're going to enter this little little pocket of college basketball right now because of all the extra years of eligibility. That there's a backlog on all the rosters and there's a there's a plethora of players to choose from from the transfer portal. That guys are going to be down in the JUCO level, just like just like the '90s again. And you're going to find some diamonds down there. I think I think Dede is going to be our, our our diamond in the rough. He's going to come through like a shining star, and he's going to have a hell of a season. 
And I also, we don't ever, each one of these transfers, I don't know if they all plan on staying two years because I think some of them have aspirations for, for professional ball, but they all have two years of eligibility left. One of them, the grad student already. That's what, that's where I'm getting at with that. You know, we have seniors, we have grad transfers, and we're talking about they have two years of eligibility left. COVID has definitely created a backlog on college rosters right now. It has, it has. And, and honestly, the backlog had the transfer portal not been as wild and free flowing as it was for the Bearcats. I think that backlog would have hindered us heading into the big 12, but the roster reset Wes Miller has been able to pull off here has put us in a position where there's legitimate optimism and hope and, and reason to have expectations. We've upgraded the roster Hummer. And I know that there was a lot of speculation that West Miller wouldn't be that aggressive in the portal and that this team would be relatively the same as it was last year, but that's anything but the truth. Landers Nolly is moving on to uh, trying to make it in the NBA. Landers Nolly is someone that brought a lot of high-level scoring and, and shooting to the team, but the team didn't gel last year like I think we expected it to. It wasn't greater than the sum of its parts. There was a lot of isolation play. You combine that with David DeJulius, who – is a, it, was a, it, was a, it was a very selfish team. Yeah, stylistically it was. It was. I think that the guys all are, have good attitudes and have the right types of personalities per se. You know, I didn't necessarily think like it was all about getting mine, you know, or putting up the most possible points I could. But for whatever reason, Wes Miller couldn't get them to execute offensively in a way that wasn't dependent on the individual capabilities of breaking someone down or settling for a mid-range step back or Landers Nolly chucking, you know, a 22 footer. And this year, I think a, a big component of this roster in terms of the, the improvements this team could possibly make it, there needs to be better execution on the court. Wes Miller bodied the off season. He dominated the transfer portal. He brought in two highly touted freshmen in Jizzle and Griffith. And if you look at what 2024 is bringing, we've got McKinley in the fold. There's rumors of Betsy. There's rumors of Richardson. Like this guy can freaking recruit and he's doing it at an, at an extremely high level. We as a fan base need to see the next step of a, an improved on court product. We need to see better basketball defensively. No more layup lines, better defensive where... rebounding. We need to see ball movement, cutting, a plan of attack where we're not degrading into, you know, just awful stagnant offense down the stretch of close games. This is why, you know, from an expectation standpoint, tournament or not, whether whatever happens with Bandago and Reynolds, we want better basketball and the roster this, is there to have better basketball. This is where I agree with our, our friend, Kevin, we're going to circle this back around. If I see process over results this season, that will at least be a step in the right direction, knowing that the the talent portal's there. But we have enough talent on this team that I think if we have if we see process, we're going to see results. Exactly. So I, I don't think they're mutually exclusive. It, it is this this will happen if we see process. We will see results. We're seeing change in the coaching staff. Um, Drew Adams is now officially on the bench as an assistant coach. We're seeing Josh Loeffler. I to me, this is likely the most critical hire. Do we still have Wes. Do, do we still have Flory's handler? <laughs> that's, that's Drew Adams. That didn't pan out. <laughs> Alas. <laughs> Josh Loeffler brought in, who was previously the head coach at Johns Hopkins, is now an assistant coach and chief of, of administrative staff. Here's the key detail of Josh Loeffler's role. He was not brought on to be a recruiter for the Bearcats. That's left to Adams, Chad Dollar. Uh, Drew Mor Dre Morgan. Loeffler is brought on as a coaching guru. To me, as a guy who's got former head coaching experience and in a perfect world is bringing experience to the, to the bench that will improve offensive ex execution in particular. Like to me, I'm hoping in my perfect world, Loeffler is a representation of Wes Miller having little enough of ego to say I can bring in other mindsets, expertises, and approaches to improve our team, to improve our program. This doesn't have to be all about me. I know what my strengths are. I know what my weaknesses are, and I'm going to address them 
both through roster evaluation and improvement. I'm also going to do it through our, through our bench. And we're not going to have Mike Roberts anymore. Lepore's off making, you know, buku bucks in the, in the uh, corporate world. We're going to bring in some guys who I think are going to tangibly move this team in the right direction from an on-court product standpoint. That is one of the more exciting and interesting developments that I think has to be monitored to see if it does, in fact, impact execution. How are we'll your see this year. How are your nipples? They're they're so hard right now. Yeah, mine are tingly Di- too. Straight diamond cutters. Mine are well, tingly too. You know that's a high note for the Bearcats uh, basketball program. I, I think we're we're excited about that. But what also, even though this isn't going to be a fun talk, I've been wanting to do this for for a couple years now. And to everybody, don't get me wrong. Dion, Dion talks going away this week, right? <laughs> we'll, we'll briefly mention because we, you know, it actually I'm, I'm didn't go away. We, we talked about it like at 3 a.m. on Saturday for the record. Well, all right. Well, they, they did lose, uh, but they had at least a, a better showing against, against a good USC team. But we that's not what it. we're here for. That's not what we're here for. We're here to talk Cincinnati Bengals. Coomer and I have been going back and forth over what the real source of the of the Cincinnati Bengals is. And I'm going to let you guys I'm know I'm not even that. sure it's truly like a back and forth necessarily. I think it's two Cincinnati Bengals fans. Just trying to figure out what the hell's going on. Asking what the hell is going on, dude. Like so, I almost want to like deconstruct where we're at, how we got here, what is in fact transpiring in front of our eyes because the Bengals are one in three and – the I was going to go there. Like the plan in place just doesn't seem logical. Like at a minimum, it just seems like this team is lacking direction. And if you really, if you're able to kind of think back beyond the last two years of historic and unprecedented success for the Bengals franchise, there's a lot of reasons to question Bengals leadership and ownership and big picture decision making. And I just wonder if it's rearing its ugly head again because. A lot of the decisions being made do not make sense right now. Let let me let me I guess for full transparency here. Let er, I want to let everybody know what what I think about Zach Taylor outside of this season. Right, I have never been a fan of Zach Taylor. I've always thought that he brought a very boring vanilla style of offense to to the Bengals and his idea in my, in my mind of, of adjusting was literally to stop being an idiot and taking the ball out of your best player's hands and creating what is now known as the Joe B Joe offense. So, <laughs> and when we made the super bowl, I remember, I don't know if it was, if I talked to you, I talked to another friend, I literally said, the only thing that is bad about making the super bowl is that we're stuck with Zach Taylor for life. Like I compared never... it. I compared it to Mike McCarthy at Green Bay. Now the time at the comparison. time making the Super Bowl, I thought solid coach. Certainly not in the bottom third percentile, but I'm not sure he's a true game changer. I think culturally he's been a key part of of moving this franchise out of abject failure. But I think a big part of that was also Joe Burrow being Joe Burrow. Um the limitations on Zach Taylor's in-game play calling to me this season are being exploited and and exposed more so than anything we saw in the past two seasons. But I think part of that is the evolution of the NFL. The NFL evolves every single year and it happens fast. And if you're not adjusting and if you're not adapting, you're going to look obsolete pretty fucking quick. And he's not in, in so far, you know, watching the advance and going through and reading the advanced statistics and advanced stats or whatever, running all this stuff, they actually haven't changed the offense. We're still that's throwing, the problem. We're still Other throwing teams at are. this high. Well, it's not even that we're not changing. It's the fact that we know Joe Burrow is hurt. Everybody, anybody who has eyes can tell that Joe Burrow is lacking confidence to throw the ball with velocity downfield into those tight windows that what he what he's famous for. Right, he throws his pass, and you're like, "Oh my god, that should probably be picked off." But it's just perfect. It's just perfect. So, it has the zing on it, and he can't do that right now. And so the only thing he can do is hit the checkdowns. But we need to talk about that. That's it. the crux. That's the crux of the issue here. 
like the big picture conversation we're talking about here is Joe Burrow and what exactly is going on there. So Joe Burrow gets hurt early in camp with a calf injury and misses the rest of training camp. And Zach Taylor has a history anyway of not playing players during preseason games. It's what we've attributed to our slow starts in the past is the lack of familiarity, the lack of reps, and the team plays their way into contention as the season progresses. Joe Burrow comes back for the first game against Cleveland in you know horrendous weather, to be fair, but he looks atrocious. I mean, he plays an, an object, objectively terrible game with a yardage total that didn't even exceed 100 yards. And we used all the excuses. We used preseason, hasn't played, coming back from injury, bad weather, tough defense. There was all these things and variables that we could put into play and say that's exactly why that happened. But what's transpired since is more either pedestrian or poor performances. Joe Burrow's been bad through four games. Just bad. And if it's injury, what's he doing out there? I can't figure it out. If he's injured, what is he doing out there? I think, like, you're right. The first game, the bad weather, kind of, you chalk it up as, okay, you know, bad game. You run it out there. But then you see three three more performances that are that are lackluster. Yes, we did get a win against the Rams, but by all means, that performance from Joe Burrow was 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 lackluster. It was poor. It was not good. And when there's hindsight to it, you you sit there and you say, okay, there was an article that came out. I don't remember who wrote it, but it basically stated that the game plan was being developed around Joe Burrow not being able to throw the ball deep. So, you know, they're going to have those check down routes. They're going to try to run the ball, you know, have that, have that mix. And if that's the case, that means you knew he's hurt. If you would have just sat him and actually let him heal, we're talking about the three games. Maybe you squeeze a, a victory out somewhere. Maybe you don't. You're 0-3. But Joe, Joe's back in, in game four in another month, and we're good to go. And what's worrying now is, you know, we know other quarterbacks, especially, well, he's older, but – Aaron Rodgers played on a bad calf last year. He came back and then this year and tears his Achilles, Achilles heel. And what, what worries me with Joe Burrow is how, how he's, he's like glass. He's fragile at times. He gets injured. He has a bad knee. Do we had a bad calf? Do we want to, do we want to risk any more? He's our quarterback for the next seven years. And five of those years, he is the highest paid quarterback in the league. If he goes down and can't play, that money is guaranteed. We are screwed. We won't be able to get out of that contract. We will owe him the money. We won't be able to pay anybody else. Our future is tied up into Joe Burrow. So well, that, and that's, where, that's where it's scary to me. It is scary. But the narrative the Bengals are putting out there, and really Joe Burrow is putting it out there too, is – hey, I can play through this, and every week that there's not a clear and sudden setback, I'm going to keep getting better and better and better. Going into the Tennessee game, we were told Joe Burrow was in uh, the healthiest position he's been in, in in weeks, that he was improving, that things were getting better. And that was arguably just as bad of a performance as, as we've seen since Cleveland. And so what I what I can't wrap my head around is if that is an improving Joe Burrow, if he's actually getting healthier, we might have a bigger problem on our hands. Like, do we have an actual quality of his play? Does he have the, the yips? Like, what the hell is happening? Because you're telling us he's getting better, but the performances aren't. Um, I'm not going to go with the yips. I'm not, I'm not going there yet. And the reason why I'm not going there is because when you watch him play, he's not planting on the back foot at all. He is avoiding it at all costs, which to me says I'm hurt. I'm not playing the way I want to play. He's also not able to, he's not scrambling out of the pocket. He's not trying to, to run around a lot. It, it shows that he's well, trying to stay off that leg. I think, I think it's still, there's still an injury there. I, I, what this is all is building to is it's the commentary about, well, an injured Joe Burrow, a compromised Joe Burrow, a Joe Burrow at 50%, that's still better than our backup quarterback. Here's mm. the problem with that theory. 
they look like shit with him in the lineup right now. It's actually not better. Like if that's if that's better, it's not worth it because you're still playing an injured Joe Burrow, and this is bigger than this one season. This could very well be a season from hell. This could very well be a season that is a sunk cost because everything's going wrong and our starting quarterback got injured before the season started. But you're lying to yourself if you think it's a good idea to keep playing Joe Burrow in a compromised position. And frankly, if he is getting better and this is what he still looks like, you should still bench him to get him to 100% because mentally the checkdowns, it looks it looks like a guy who's scared to get hit in the pocket. It looks like a guy who doesn't have the ability to get zip on the ball, throw it down the field. And if we're being honest with ourselves, this is the difference between a compromised Joe Burrow and a compromised Pat Mahomes or a compromised Josh Allen or a compromised um, Herbert. Those guys compromised Pat, in, Pat, Pat Mahomes beat us. Those guys have arm strength that is unparalleled. Joe Burrow does not have the raw arm strength to overcome not having the proper base and leg strength to push off and get the, the proper zip or inertia on his throws. He can't do it. And here, here. And, and that's just the pure and unadulterated, unadulterated difference. He's great at the line. He's got in, incredible accuracy and timing and precision, and none of that is in play right now. And so if it, with him not being right, it's a very simple decision. You put him on the pine until he's physically 100%. And when he is, you bring him back and you start doing your best to make a run to close out the season and see if you can sneak in the playoffs. Well, I mean, you're honestly, I'm not arguing against you. I think you're right. It, it comes down to, you know, if he's hurt, the better option right now is to not play him because the more you do, it's this is one of those injuries that lingers. And who knows? Next week he can come out, be on fire, and actually actually be healthy because he hasn't reaggra- maybe hasn't reaggravated in a couple weeks. I don't know. Hopefully that's what happens. And and I'm I'm eating crow here. But if he is injured, he should sit. But I think the long the long story short, it's not if Hummer. Like staff, there's no argument right now. They're telling us he's injured and he looks terrible on the field. The long they're not the Bengals organization is not really telling us that he's he's hurt hurt. They're just they're rolling him out and saying, oh, he's getting better. He's getting better. That's insane. If that's true, then then we're in trouble. The long story short here is the coaching staff should have been the one making a decision from the get-go saying you're not ready to play. By the way, Game that's one. how football works. Our coach has the power to sit guys down. They have yes, the ability to say you're not playing. This is not a Joe Burrow decision. This is a franchise decision. This is professional football. They can sit him if he's not right and if he's not adding to winning. And right now he's not. And it's simply no. not worth it. It's 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 a shame. You know, you never want to see the especially because we're in the window right now. Like this team is in a window to win a Super Bowl. They've been in a window to win, you know, multiple Super Bowls here. Um, and at some point, we're going to have to retool. We're going to have to refresh. We're going to have to make hard decisions about who to sign, who not to sign. And, you know, unfortunately, this is just one of those years where everything's, you know, flipped on its head. This is, so I don't, far, see, where goes, year I don't see where it goes from here. I don't see where it goes from here. Yeah, there's a lot to turn around. That Tennessee game was objectively terrible. Can we talk about AJ McCarron real quick? Why? How old is AJ McCarron? If I had to guess, he's 33 years old. Is he really? He's younger than me, and I'm sitting there saying, this guy is old. (laughs) How old is AJ McCarron? He is 33. Wow. Uh, Good for me. But he was drafted. Camera. He was drafted nine years ago. Last on an NFL roster in 2001. I love that right now, the backup quarterback situation, when you hear people like throw out names, it is just some old people for, for the NFL. And, <laughs> and, uh, and then Where, I saw Andy. Bring Andy in Phillip Rivers. Back. Where's Phillip Rivers? Bring him yeah. in. Andy Dalton comes back with the Carolina and, and throws a victory for him. Like, why didn't we have that that fourth foresight to, to hire Andy Dalton? Dude, we started with our buddy Kevin Wallace. We're going to end with our buddy Kevin Wallace. <laughs> he is cackling and rolling a blunt right now, thinking about the prospect 
of labeling Andy Dalton a better Bengals quarterback than Joe Burrow. I'm just letting people know now. <laughs> this guy is giddy. He is giddy at what's happening and thrilled at the possibility uh, of launching some incredibly hot, spicy Andy Dalton takes. I'm just letting you know now. Uh, you know what? I think we 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 got to leave it on that note. We're we're a little over an hour. How do you, uh, are you happy? You got some Bengals talk in? You feeling good? I'm feeling good. We, we're going to bring it back. This is going to be a weekly thing. Uh, so, sorry, this is going to morph into a Cincy sports podcast, but we will always, always, always roll with the uh, with the Bearcats first. So maybe well, not next week. If we're mixing it in with the Bearcats, it's got to happen at the end. And then if you want to do a pure Bengals talk, you just got to label it as such. And, and the people will know whether or not they want to listen. Um, I am glad that the, the camera decided to crap out only at the Bengals talk and not the Bearcats. So we'll leave it there, Hum. Um, I'll let you sign us off since you were uh, the host today. Well done. Claps for you. I don't even remember how, how, to, how to sign us off. Go, go Bearcats. <laughs> go Bearcats.